Hi, and welcome to Sisters Love Podcast. My name is Shelly. And my name is Shannon. We are sisters, and we talk about what we love to watch, love to learn, love to love, love to read. Well, you get the idea. Today, we're going to talk about vampire stories. First up is John William Polidori's short story from 1819, The Vampire. Wikipedia does a great job rounding up a lot of the sources around this story and its origins, but it's widely considered to be the first modern vampire story. To me, the backstory is just as interesting as the story itself, maybe more so. Polidori was Lord Byron's personal physician at the time, and he wrote this story as part of a contest between Byron, Percy Shelley, and Mary Wollstonecraft, who later married Percy Shelley and took his name. I think the juiciest tidbit from all of this is that Mary Shelley's entry into their contest was Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus, which is one of my favorite novels of all time. We're going to have to read that one for a future episode because I'm dying to hear your take. The idea of all these literary greats sitting around writing stories together is an English major's dream come true. I was not aware of the origins of this story until you told me, and it is so interesting. I have to admit, I hadn't read anything 200 years old since college, and my brain may have deteriorated a bit since that time. It took me a minute to get into the rhythm of prose that old. Interestingly, I don't feel that way about Frankenstein at all, even though it's the same age. I have to confess that this book was a challenge that I failed. I had never read anything 200 years old and couldn't manage to finish it. Whatever English major genius your brain is, mine is the opposite. For our audience, I should explain that I had never been a reader until very recently, Without going into too much detail, I have Erlen's syndrome, which is commonly misdiagnosed as dyslexia. My previous symptoms included inability to focus my eyes, seeing rivers of white through text, my eyes hurting so much they felt like they were going to explode, and letters literally floating around on the page. Needless to say, I never read. Not even for school. Seriously. Never. The first novel I ever read was Mexican Gothic, which we discussed in our previous Haunted House Stories episode. Multiple factors with my health have improved over the past two years, which surprisingly resulted in ability to read for the most part without symptoms. And yet, I still couldn't finish this book. Thankfully, we do have Shannon, the brilliant English major, to tell us what it's all about. (laughs) You're far, far too kind. But I hope you take some comfort in the fact that I struggled with this one too. It's definitely not just you. The story itself is about a young man named Aubrey who becomes intrigued with the mysterious Lord Ruthhaven. The pair travel the European continent together until Aubrey realizes that Ruthhaven is first a moral and later, and most importantly, a vampire. Long story short, Ruthhaven tricks Aubrey's sister into marrying him, drinks her blood, killing her. After unsuccessfully trying to stop the marriage and save his sister, Aubrey dies from madness. 
The vampire is short on details, so we don't know if vampires in this universe can make other vampires or if they simply kill all their victims. I read it so you don't have to. You're welcome. One thing of note is that the story introduces the concept of the vampire as the other, playing on people's fears of those different than themselves and people's tendency towards xenophobia. The story seems fairly simple now, but caused quite a stir when it was published. I honestly think that a big part of that is that it was initially falsely attributed to Lord Byron as its author. I think it's interesting as a historical artifact, but it isn't going to tell you anything about the vampire genre you don't already know. Next, we'd like to talk about Carmilla by Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu, specifically the 2019 edition edited by Carmen Maria Mikado. You may be asking why the original was edited. In the introduction written by the editor, she explains, The accompanying text includes footnotes of both a practical and illustrative nature. It is useful, for example, to have a sense of the many provinces and cities referenced here, and their historical and contemporary dimensions. The text is edited to reflect a more modern grammatical sensibility where necessary. There are also places where your faithful editor has done her best to interpret Le Fanu's passionate and unrequited love affair with unnecessary commas. I briefly reviewed the original version and can confirm that Le Fanu loved a comma. The product of Mikado's editing is an incredibly well-constructed and easily read text. Given that the original was written in 1871, 52 years after The Vampire, but still 26 years prior to Bram Stoker's Dracula, that is saying something. First, the comma comet killed me. My literary nerd self was highly appreciative, but I also realize I may resemble that remark. I was so excited to read this book. Carmen Maria Mikado is one of my favorite contemporary authors. Her debut collection of short stories, Her Body and Other Parties, is fascinating and complex. I also just started her memoir in the Dream House, and I'm very excited to read it. She also loves horror in general, so I thought she'd be perfect to breathe new life into an old vampire text. So what did you think about the book? And to be clear to the audience, we're talking about this edition specifically, not other versions of the story. I absolutely adored this book. It revolves primarily around the relationship between Laura, the daughter of a gentleman of modest means, and Carmilla, a mysterious stranger seemingly of similar age to Laura, whom Laura's family has agreed to look after while Carmilla's mother is on a trip of some days. Strange happenings begin to occur during Carmilla's stay, which climax with the arrival of family friend General Spielsdorf after his daughter's tragic death. General Spielsdorf also received an unexpected visitor, Malarka, whose description is eerily like that of Carmilla. The general is on the hunt for the tomb of Markala, Countess of Karstein, at a ruined village chateau near Laura's family home. He believes Markala to be Malarka, a vampire that stole his daughter's life from her. Could Markala, Malarka, and Carmilla be all one and the same? The general is determined to find answers, as is Laura's father after listening to the general's tale and connecting the similarities with his daughter's current illness 
to the general's daughter's demise. It is also important to note in Carmilla that a vampire's bite does not infect. However, the human providing nourishment will eventually die from the illness created by the bite. I was surprised by how modern the prose reads, even though the novel was only written about 60 years after Polidori's The Vampire, although I recognize this may have to do with the editing as well. Carmilla is the lesbian vampire prototype, seducing her victims before stealing their blood to survive. The homosexual tones in this book are very vague. Remember, it was written in 1871, but are obviously present if you navigate through the path that swings widely around the point. Mikado mentions in her editor's introduction a truly fascinating fact about the history of the story, the correspondence explored in the novel between Dr. Martin Hesselis and Laura is based on actual correspondence between Dr. Peter Fontenot and Veronica Housel. I found this so interesting. The actual correspondence discovered and researched by Dr. Jane Light includes more detail on the romantic nature of the relationship between Veronica and Marcia, the real-life counterparts to our Laura and Carmela. Marcia was ultimately executed for her relationship with Veronica. Le Fanu chose to translate a queer romance with a tragic end into a predatory monster story, but we do not have time for me to get into the repercussions of that choice. Mikado chose not to change the original story, but only make it more easily read and understood. As she noted in her introduction when discussing the choice not to include more detail from the original correspondence, quote, I wish this edition to bear Le Fanu's shame. I wish the reader to come to the book with a complete understanding of its inadequacy. End quote. I really appreciated that sick burn she put on Le Fanu, although I would absolutely read a more comprehensive version of the story that she wrote that included more information about the correspondence between Veronica and Marcia. That said, I can't think of a better note to end our discussion of Carmilla on than that one. The author Richard Matheson gets a twofer in this episode, which seems appropriate. While you may not know the name, you definitely know his work. He wrote nearly 30 novels and more than 100 short stories. Movies based on his works include What Dreams May Come, A Stir of Echoes, and I Am Legend. I think it's safe to say we'll be talking about that last one in a bit. But before we get to it, let's talk about one of his most famous short stories, 1951's Blood Sun. Blood Sun is only eight pages long, but packs a punch for such a short story. Jules, the main character, desperately wants to become a vampire. He sounds like a school shooter in the making, and that isn't a joke. The story even talked about some very serial killer-like behavior involving an animal that I will not detail here. But it's almost a throwaway, and even the story mentions it was soon forgotten. It seems like all the adults, especially Jules's parents, really want to pretend like everything is all right with him, despite all evidence to the contrary. It reminded me of Anna Lily Amapur's comment we discussed in our Vampire Movies episode the vampires were, among other things, serial killers. Jules becomes obsessed with the novel Dracula and starts sneaking into the local zoo, 
intent on releasing the resident vampire bat, which he's decided is an actual vampire in disguise. I love this story. We had both read it before, though I had zero recollection. When you first mentioned it for this episode, it was not familiar at all, but I was only one sentence in when I texted you. Does this have a zoo with a vampire bat? Because if it does, I've read it before. I didn't even remember the introduction, but something about it sparked a memory of the story for me. We surmised that I must have read it when you were visiting from college. It is very short, which fell into my reading threshold for that time. I was and am very impressed with how much detail and imagery Matheson was able to invoke in so few pages. You were very quickly invested in Jules's obsession, which is both creepy and thrilling. I was both afraid of others from Jules, afraid for Jules about what was happening to him and what would happen to him, and frankly, just incredibly intrigued at where the story would go. I know this story is almost 50 years old, but I hesitate to talk about the ending because that's key to the story. What do you think? Well, we do need to note that in Blood Sun, a human will turn into a vampire if bitten. We will leave the rest to the imagination. That brings us to Matheson's 1954 novel, I Am Legend. I read this one in college too, and it's aged like fine wine. When a bacteria turns humanity into vampires, Robert Neville finds himself alone in the world, killing vampires by day while trying to find a reason to go on living. It was even better than I remembered, and I remembered loving it. What did you think? I absolutely love this book. The only familiarity I had was with the I Am Legend movie with Will Smith, which I did not love. Multiple people had commented to me that it was a poor translation of the book and should not even be called I Am Legend. Now, having read the book, the idea of that movie offends me. I vehemently agree it should have never been called I Am Legend. I am going to move on before I go on a tangent. While I did end up loving this book, I did not love it from the start. I found Neville to be very annoying in part one. Part two started to capture my interest, and part three was awesome. Though in hindsight, I do understand the evolution that Matheson was creating in Neville's character. There's so much to unpack here. I'm not sure where to begin. I loved everything about the story. The spare prose reflects the spare life Neville lives. Matheson doesn't waste a single word. The Kindle version is only 103 pages long. Again, I am so impressed with how much story Matheson fits into such limited pages. It really is a gift, and I am eager to read more of his works. As an aside, my brain likes to cast characters whenever it sees fit. And in my brain, Robert Neville is Donald Glover. I cannot unsee it. And now none of us can see it. But I am totally okay with that choice, and I'm here for it. A large part of the novel is dedicated to Neville trying to understand the vampire affliction and learn to cure it, at least when he isn't killing them. There are two types of vampires in the story, the reanimated dead and the infected living. In an interesting twist, Neville himself becomes a serial killer of sorts. 
He also starts experimenting on the vampires while allegedly trying to cure them, but even notes to himself that he only chooses women for his experiments. I think that detail chilled me more than the murderous behavior of the vampires. They aren't responsible for much of their behavior, which is driven on instinct and need. But he is. He figures this out almost with disgust, but doesn't stop targeting women. He talks on several occasions about the vampire women tempting him with their grotesque sexuality. But you get the idea he thought quite a few women were harlots prior to the vampire plague. The approach Matheson took with explaining vampirism as an infection was fascinating. If you were bitten, you turn. The process of crude experiments performed by a man without a science background in order to find a pretty complex solution to his problem was riveting. Now, how he chose to go about those experiments is really, I agree, what makes his story horrific. This novel also plays on the theme of the vampire as the other. At the beginning of the novel, Neville has an internal argument and asks if the vampire is really worse than the manufacturer who set up belated foundations with the money he made handing bombs and guns to suicidal nationalists. All he does is drink blood. Why then this unkind prejudice, this thoughtless bias? Sure, 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 he thought. But would you let your sister marry one? We've all heard racists make this kind of argument about all kinds of groups of people. So clearly Matheson was riffing on that tired racist trope. I also thought it was very interesting that he realizes that crosses only affected vampires who were Christians in life. So it wasn't a physical manifestation, as vampire lore often indicates but an emotional one. He proved this by determining his Jewish neighbor was afraid of the Torah. Yes, he deduces that the fear vampires have of religious symbols was fear instilled in them when they were still human. Because he is human and they are not, he is good and they are bad. However, we discover that the truth is not always that simple. Life is rarely black and white. I think Neville's mind frames his existence in such clear-cut terms as a survival mechanism. The vampires destroyed the world as he knew it. How could the result of such destruction, both globally and personally, be anything but evil? I understand how he embraced that perspective, though we find out that it is not true. Yes, some of the vampires are monstrous, murderous creatures, but there are others that evolve to function with this new infection. And to them, the enemy is Robert Neville. He is the evil in their world, killing them en masse. He is their one true enemy that must be defeated for their survival. I think this is, at its core, a philosophical novel, even more than it is a vampire story. It asks the hard questions. How do you find meaning when everything that gave your life meaning is gone? Is it ever acceptable to murder indiscriminately, even in self-defense? When society has fallen apart, what behavior should we accept in ourselves? And can that answer change over time? I love that the novel doesn't present any easy answers. He thinks he's the last shred of existing humanity, 
but in reality, his humanity dies long before he does. I also think the last line, I am a legend, may be overstating his impact on the New World Order, but gives you a glimpse into his self-aggrandizing behavior. I do think the fact he wants the new humans to remember him indicates he has some kind of respect for them. He thinks he'll pass into legend, but I'm not so sure he'll be thought of as more than a serial killer. Agreed. He is a legend, but so is Ted Bundy. Last, but certainly not least, we'd like to talk about the newest story on our list, 2005's Fledgling by Octavia E. Butler. Butler was an absolute literary powerhouse. My book club read Parable of the Sower, the first of her post-apocalyptic trilogy, and it's fantastic. What did you think of Fledgling? I adored this book. I was hooked from the very beginning. I liked that vampires were not monsters, but a different species that live alongside humans, even if the humans aren't aware. I also liked the approach taken that human myths of vampires were based on the reality of the Aina, the vampire species in the book. Fledgling also includes racial injustice, polyamorous relationships, same-sex relationships, and people of color. Never have I encountered a vampire story that was so inclusive, and I appreciated it greatly. I completely agree. Shori, the main character in the novel, is young by vampire standards at 53 years old. She wakes up in a cave with profound injuries, an uncontrollable hunger, and amnesia. As the story continues, she starts to realize she narrowly escaped being murdered and that she and her family are still in very real danger. The perspective of Shori as a vampire with amnesia was so unique. She is this powerful creature, but with no memory of how to survive in the world. In the beginning, she is driven by pure instinct, which serves her well. She first gains an ally in Wright, a human. This is when we learn that Ina cannot turn humans into vampires. They feed on them until they die, or only so much is needed for survival, and in doing so, it creates a symbiotic relationship between them. Any human that is fed upon and allowed to live is infected with the venom of the vampire, creating an involuntary, unbreakable attachment. The human is forever tied to that vampire for survival. For if that vampire should die, the symbiont will die as well, unless they are able to tether to a new, willing Ina, though this process can be very painful and often unsuccessful. Ina are also not immortal. They do have significantly longer lifespans than humans, hundreds of years, but will eventually die of old age. The human symbionts created by Ina for survival also have extended life expectancies, not as long as Ina themselves, but well over 100 years. We learn over the course of the story that Ina have a very traditional vampire appearance, tall and pale. Except Shori. She is black. Her maternal family intentionally sought this characteristic for her as a means to extend their species' exposure to the sun. Customary among vampire legend, the Ina are burned by the sun and sleep unwakably deep during the day. 
Shori's mothers explored genetic manipulation in order to strengthen the Aina and allow them to live more independently. Shori can withstand the sun for a period of time and does not require sleep during the day. There is a family of Aina, the Silks, that takes offense to this impurity in their species and seeks to destroy Shori and her family. The initial attack is what she survives in the beginning. As Shori seeks out her living family and answers to what it means to be Aina, the Silks continue their attacks of vile hatred, culminating in a council of judgment where they are to stand trial for their actions. It is a thrilling, emotional, and extremely well-written story. Also, Joan Braithwaite's is Tilda Swinton. You cannot change my mind. And I wouldn't try to for a second. Fledgling isn't an allegory for racism like parts of Iron Legend. Many Ina are just straight-up racist who hate Shori simply for being Black, despite her intellect, leadership qualities, and inherent goodness. This, along with so many details about the human and Ina experiences, creates a visually realized world where vampires and humans coexist. The only issue I had with the book was the description of Shori's character. She is a 53-year-old Ina, but that results in her presenting similarly to a 10- to 12-year-old human. This description is mentioned multiple times, as is her sexual relationship with Wright and her other symbionts. My brain completely rejected this visual and automatically made her a youthful 19-year-old. It is the only creative choice I question from the author. I agree, that was super creepy. I just imagined her as 25. Problem solved. What are some of your favorite vampire stories? Let us know and we may cover them in a future episode. Please join us next Thursday when we discuss time travel movies, including Palm Springs, Primer, and Looper, in case you want to watch before you listen. We love suggestions, so don't hesitate to let us know if you have ideas for future episodes. Email us at contact at sistersLovePodcast.com. If you're enjoying our podcast, please do us a huge favor and give us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps people find the show. The Sisters Love Podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode was written, edited, and produced by Shelley Clark and Shannon Kelly. That's us. us. Music by Sean Mullins. We can't wait to talk to you next time. Until then, keep finding things you love, especially each other. Mm-hmm.